What I want to tell you about today is something that I believe has opened up before us that has not been understood and has not been emphasized. I never heard it emphasized or understood in my many, many years with the parent organization, nor with the Radio Church of God, nor with the Church of God Seventh Day. It will not be all that new. It's merely perhaps a matter of emphasis. Time and again, when I have been in ministerial conferences, I have heard about the sacrifice of Christ and how it is applied in the case of healing. About a year and a half or so ago at the Passover, the organization that now rules over the parent church wrote an article in which they claimed new truth had been revealed by God and in which the stripes of Jesus Christ are not efficacious or specifically applicable to our physical healing, but that healing is in fact merely a part of God's generosity, God's mercy, God's love, his largesse. And we pray to him, and if we are blessed with healing, that's wonderful. It is a gift of God, and he is willing to heal us, and it is according to his will to heal us. But that technically applying the beaten, shredded, broken body of Christ to our physical sins, as we call them, like ingesting wrong foods or contracting a disease, is no longer the understanding of that organization. I find that difficult to accept. As a matter of fact, I find it absolutely heretical. Not only difficult to accept, but contrary to the Word of God, as it says very clearly in 1 Corinthians 11, when the Apostle Paul is reminding them of the sacrifice at a Passover, how that, in the night Christ was betrayed, he took the cup and said, Take, drink, this is my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins, and then broke the bread and said, This is my body. And then Paul went on to say, for this cause, many of you are weak or infirm, debilitated, sick, and many are dead. Many sleep. Not what? Remember that scripture? A lot of you have it memorized. Not discerning the Lord's body. Nothing could be clearer than that. That you discern the Lord's body. All of us are familiar with that dual sacrifice that we rehearse every year at Passover as God progressively through the seasons reveals to us his plan and his purpose. And we know that the wine is symbolic of his shed blood, that he died of hundreds of little and minor wounds and finally of a large spear wound, and he shed his life's blood for our sins. And all of the sins of omission and commission, the terrible things we've thought and said and done all of our lives, are washed away symbolically by his blood and by the baptismal pool, and we rise out of that baptismal pool white, snowy clean, and absolutely unblemished in the sight of God. So we know that the blood of Christ is applicable to all of our sins in the past, and that we are justified and made right up to that instant when we wade out of the baptismal pool and we are as snowy clean in God's sight as an angel, no sin accruing to us whatsoever by the blood of Christ. And we know that technically or even legally, the Bible is a legal document. It's called the New Will, the New Testament. And we apply those sacrifices. His blood to atone for our sins, his beaten and broken body for our healing. Many, many times I have seen letters come in or understood that people would come up to us and request prayer for the sniffles, for a child with a cold. Or we have people who say, 
my husband just broke his foot and he can't work anymore and we're having serious financial reversals and we'd approve, we'd really appreciate your prayers. Or someone will say, I'm a shut-in and I have diabetes and I'm on welfare and I live in a mobile home and I'm quite lonely and I would appreciate your prayers. Years and years ago in ministerial conferences I heard that Christ's broken body cannot be applied to the common cold. When someone is merely heartbroken, rejected, morose, ashamed, lonely, when they're hurting because of rejection by a loved one or a family member, you can't apply the broken body of Christ to that. If you want a title for this sermon, it is Christ's Lonely Sacrifice. If you'll turn to Matthew 11 and verse 28, he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. How many of you labor? That doesn't just mean literally that you work as a carpenter or a ditch digger or a truck driver or a housewife or a nurse or anything else. It means that you're laboring through life, that the problems of your life are like so much goo and molasses and you're barely able to get along because you've got problems, problems of appetite, Financial problems, physical problems, problems in your family, political problems, problems of the emotions, and you're laboring under these problems. If you've got a child that's uh, in school, and he's about 17 or 18, in this drug-infested, rotten, filthy society, you're probably laboring on a day-to-day -day basis with concern over that child. You have people in your family who are crippled, who are deformed, who have physical defects. It's a life's labor to go along through life caring for those people, being concerned for those people, trying to help them. Those of you that are laboring and that are heavy laden, now a burden that you bear can just almost break your back. It's like taking a huge big yoke of weights upon you with big buckets out on either end filled with water and it just bows your back. And there are times of our lives when we feel exactly that way. Christ says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, what was his yoke? What was Christ's burden? In the 52nd chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 52 and 53, there are a couple of very profound prophecies, and I think in large extent, some of the wording of this prophecy might be applied to God's church in the last 30 years. I have seen progressively, and I mean this sincerely, that in the last 11 years or so, removed from the shackles of hierarchical structure, removed from conformity, and removed from a lateral association or relationship which drains all of your loyalty, all of your strength, all of your financial resources, and informs you that your sole purpose for being called and for being chosen and brought into the knowledge of God's Word is to get back of one man. For the last 11 years, I have seen a tremendous opening of the Word of God, a tremendous growth in a full, rich tapestry of understanding, a personal responsibility, the value of our personal calling a personal relationship with Jesus Christ of Nazareth as our high priest, our elder brother, and our friend. 
And this, to me, is one more major step in that direction. It has opened up before me a full-flowing river of water like the Holy Spirit to help me understand the lonely sacrifice of Jesus Christ and how it applies to all of us all the time. He says, Depart ye, verse 11, chapter 52, to his ministry and his priests. Go you out from thence, touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. And it says in verse 13, a prophecy of Christ, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many as were astonished at thee, his visage, and I'll paraphrase this in the modern language, his visage was marred so that he didn't look manlike. His form did not look like that of a son of man, because he was beaten and lacerated. The contusions and abrasions on his body were such that, as it says in a prophecy of the 22nd chapter of Psalm, I may tell all my bones. And there is indication that the flesh was flayed from his back so that the reddish gleam of bone could actually be seen, that his cheeks were flayed from his cheekbones, that perhaps his eyes were so bruised that they were swollen almost totally shut. He was literally beaten into unrecognizability. So shall he sprinkle many nations, reference in shadowy type to the Day of Atonement and the slaying of the bull and the dipping of the priest's fingers into the basin and sprinkling both the book and the people and the drops of blood that symbolically fell upon them as the sacrifice of Christ. And kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the eternal revealed? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant, referring back to his babyhood, his young boyhood, and how he confounded the doctors when he was only age twelve. And as a root out of a dry ground, he has no form nor comeliness, that is, he was not handsome, striking, or beautiful. He was plain, common, ordinary. And when we see him, or that is, he has no comeliness when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. A blind man would be attracted immediately to Jesus Christ if he listened for a moment. A deaf man wouldn't pay any attention to him, because the deaf man could see, but he couldn't hear his words. Jesus had nothing physically attractive or outstanding about him at all. He is despised. Now, that's... A puzzling statement in a way when you stop to think about it. Let me ask you a question. You just think about it with all that you know about the Gospels and about the life story of Jesus Christ. Why was he despised? Who despised him? By whom? When? Under what circumstances? Why was Christ despised? Christ was so perfect that I like to think that there was never a time when he picked up their version of a teacup when his little finger wasn't exactly in the right place. His social graces were such that he never made a faux pas, a mistake. Now, he is not the Christ of the Baptists and Methodists and Lutherans and Catholic Church. He is not the Christ who tried to empty every graveyard or would always turn aside for whatever egotistical, swelling, toadish, vain person came running up with his latest prophecy. He was not the person who would go 110 miles to visit every widow he could find. He actually turned away from the lady up in Sidon who came to him day after day begging for her daughter to be relieved of a demon that was afflicting her little girl. And finally, when she was pestering them, the disciples said, Lord, send her away. And when they did that, she finally recognized which one he was. I covered it in the Real Jesus book and also in Peter's story. And she came to him, 
And he said, I am not sent but the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And I'm saying that if she had not said what she did, had not believed what she believed, he would have turned away. And therefore, by omission, I am convinced there were other cases in his ministry where he did just that. Does that fit the mold of your vision of Christ? Were there times when people came to him for the wrong reasons, with their vanity hanging out, when he did not turn and just kowtow to everything they had to say and listen to them and let their ego just be all that more swelled up? Well, she said, when he said it is not fit to take the meat that is designed for the children and give it to the dogs, rather an unfortunate analogy, some people might think. She said, yes, Lord, but don't the dogs even eat of that which falls from the table? And he said, I have not found such faith, not among my own people of Israel. Go, and it shall be done unto you as you wish. And she went home and found her daughter sane. Quite an example. Why was Jesus despised? Let me tell you that he was despised by his own brethren. There was a time when his two brothers said, Oh, you're going to the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, why don't you go up there and do the great deeds in Jerusalem that you claim to have been doing down here? And they chided him and made fun and ridiculed his miracles. All of the sages in the city in which he grew up, Nazareth, were well known to Jesus Christ. He had been a frequent visitor in that synagogue. At the very beginning of the first flush of his public ministry, he goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, and the keeper of the scrolls brought him the scroll of Isaiah. He opened to it and read a portion that had to do with the messenger who was to come to preach the gospel. And he said, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And then they began to say, well, now, wait a minute. Isn't this Joseph's boy? Haven't we seen him in the streets? Haven't we known his family? Isn't he a local boy? And they use the same old analogy that people use continually. I've had people tell me for years, they've written in and asked, or they've simply said to me in letters or personally, oh, well, your father used to be one of us. Your, your dad was a seven-day Adventist. Or they'd say, if there's Jehovah's Witnesses coming to my door nearly always on a Saturday morning, and they would say, oh, Herbert Armstrong? Well, he used to be one of us. My standard answer is, why do you put yourself down like that? Why do you feel that about yourself? And they look at me in open-jawed amazement. What do you mean? What do you mean to say the most unrecommending thing that could ever occur to anybody is to have formerly been affiliated with you? Why do we say familiarity breeds contempt? Why should it? It does, and that's a rotten quirk of human nature that is backward to where it should be. That is merely self-contempt. You're saying that I am of such little worth that my husband, my wife, my father, my mother, my children, my family, my close kin couldn't be anybody. Nobody from my close kin could ever be anybody because I am such a klutz. Isn't that what people are really saying when you think about it? So Jesus, knowing their thoughts and hearing them reason this way, said, A prophet hath no honor in his own country, among his kin, or in his own house. All the time Jesus Christ was a boy growing up, he would hear other kids giggling. And some of the little gangland type of kids over there could even be heard using a very ugly word having to do with illegitimacy. It finally came out in a confrontation between Christ and some of the Jews in the temple in Jerusalem when he was telling them that they were of their father, the devil, because they said, we be Abraham's seed and have never been in bondage to any man. What an absolute grotesque lie when their nation was in bondage to the Romans. 
And they say, we be free. Why, we're the pride, proud Jewish race of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we've never been in bondage to any man. He said, if you love God, you would love me, for I came out from God, and I know him, but you do not know him. You are of your father, the devil, who is a liar and the author of all lies. And they said, we be not born of fornication, and immediately hurled the epithet at him of illegitimacy. So here was a man who was deserving, he was God in the human flesh, he was deserving of not only respect, but of love, of adulation, literally of worship. He was deserving of that. A perfect, flawless character. That doesn't mean he was loved and liked by everybody, because a perfect, flawless character, a godlike character, would be so unusual and so different than any concept that we have of what is a perfect character that we would be shocked. Some of us in this room would be turned off, believe it, we would be hurt, we would have our feelings hurt by Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's true because we've been so affected by our environment, by our upbringing, by our standards. God says, your thoughts are not my thoughts, and your ways are not my ways, as the heaven is high above the earth. So high and so different are my thoughts and my ways from your thoughts and your ways. Our evaluations about what is nice and what is proper, what is right, what is decent, what is the humanitarian thing, what is the good and right and decent thing to do, might be smashed like eggshells before the way Jesus Christ of Nazareth would act. I'm saying that he was perfect in God's sight, not perfect according to the lights of men. But he was flawless, he was perfect, and he was worthy of worship. And what did he receive from his family? Rejection. He was treated despicably by his own brethren. He received rejection. The moment he tried to start his first ministry, the first part of his ministry, in the city where he grew up, the big melee that occurred, of which you've read, resulted in a riot. They were turning over chairs and pews and whatever they sat on, benches, and the dust was in the air. They grabbed him, and there was a big melee. People were falling, pushing, punching, shoving. Elbows and fists were thrown. They dragged him out to the brink of a cliff, and they were going to, on the count of three, throw him right over and crunch his body because he dared to say to them, the proud Jews who had the oracles of God, who had the prophets of God, who had all the proud tradition of Moses and of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Torah, the temple. There it was over there with all of the facilities inside the temple and the daily offerings of the priests. So wherever God was, he was there. Whatever God did, he did there. Wherever God's eyes were, they were there. They weren't over here in Okadongo Swamp. They weren't somewhere over in the western unknown world. They weren't outside the other gates of Hercules. They weren't up at Dacia. They weren't clear over in China or Japan. They were God's land, God's country, and God loved them, and he worked in and through them, and they were God's chosen people. So Christ says, I tell you, in the days of Elijah, there were many widows that were suffering and starving in that protracted drought. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, city of Zidon, a widow up there. And he relieved her pain and kept her cruise of oil filled and gave her food but he bypassed starving thousands of Jewesses in the land of Israel. They couldn't handle that. That's like a prophet coming to the United States of America, God's country, with all of God's Bibles and so on, Bibles in the top drawers of the motels and 
all of our churches and all of our thousands of evangelists and saying, this is not God's country, Nepal is. Why, God just bypassed you people and went over and healed some monk's daughter and over Nepal. That would make Baptists so mad they couldn't see straight. Well, it made the Jews so mad they tried to kill him. Or he said in the days of Elisha, well, there were many people suffering this hideous, chalk-like, disfiguring disease called leprosy with bits and pieces of their ears and noses falling off. Thousands of them suffered leprosy. And Elisha, God's magnificent prophet who had the power to effect great healings and as a matter of fact, when someone came in touch with his bones after he died, he was resurrected. This powerful prophet was sent unto none of those suffering, disfigured, pain-racked Jewesses or other people of Judah in the land of Palestine, but he was sent to Naaman the Syrian, an olive-skinned son of Abraham through a different union who was not of the sons of Jacob, but an Arab. It made them so blind mad they wanted to kill Jesus Christ. They despised him. How would you like to have the experience of the first moment you ever tried to open your mouth to give a witness or a testimony for God resulting, almost resulting, in your death? Now, that would be kind of shocking. I remember a man that advertised in a paper. A lot of these prophets come and they want to start their own church. We had one that unfortunately came up to uh, Wagoner in the ministry after dealing with him for couple of days and then staying up till 2 a.m. trying to reason with the gentleman finally said, well, you know, please just don't bother coming back. He couldn't understand that. He said that he had a musical ministry. He had his beard and everything all trimmed, looked exactly like he's standing in line waiting for a bit part to play a Jesus movie. And uh, he just wanted to preach and he wanted to teach and walk about and just teach to people. Well, I, I say to people like that, look, it's a big, huge world out there. There are all kinds of halls to rent. You can stand in the street corner, roll up a magazine and yell at people if you wish. More power to you. Go on, help yourself. Just don't do it here. Just don't do it right here. This is a meeting where we have all of this reigns and so on, and we're just not allowing everybody that wants to to come in here with a megaphone or a bullhorn and start preaching to the people of God who are here for the purpose of observing the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, you know, when people do that, they get very, very upset, very angry when they are told the truth. Now, Jesus Christ of Nazareth went against the grain oftentimes when he would tell people exactly what they were, and he was despised as a direct result. I remember a man who tried to set up a meeting, and he put the ad in the paper, and he was expecting a lot of people to attend, and he had the hall rented, and he showed up, and he was standing there waiting. It was nearing 8 o'clock, and the public was going to come thronging in, and he waited until 8.10 and 8.20 and 8.30, and finally he realized nobody was coming. But he put his ad in the paper, and he knew that he was called. He was a minister. Well, he wasn't really. I'm just kidding. But nobody came. Now, sometimes that happens. But what if you had the experience Jesus Christ did? of going in your own hometown to a church you'd inhabited, you'd gone into dozens of times, standing up before the ministry and making some powerful statement, and they get so mad they cannot get at you fast enough and try to kill you. It says in chapter 53 and verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men. Remember what he said on those moments prior to being crucified, well, actually affixed to an upright pale or a stake. The word crucified is a Greek is a, an English word translated from the Greek crux, which is true, uh, not in the Bible, actually. Remember what he said? If they have hated me, they will hate you. 
If they have rejected me, they will reject you, for the servant is not greater than his Lord or his master. They will treat you the same way, contemptibly. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. How do you handle rejection? I am a refugee from rejection for absolutely false, lying reasons from a third party who got the ear of my very elderly, trusting old father, lied to him, and in six or seven years of frantically trying to call him, get him on the telephone, see him personally, straighten all of this out, I was denied by those around him any access to my dad. He believed third party lies and rejected his own son his only living son. I understand right down to the ground the feeling of rejection. How many of you in this room, could I ask for a showing of hands, how many of you in this room have undergone a divorce? How many have undergone a divorce, please? How many? Look at that. It looks like almost a fourth or a third of us here. And probably this would be lower than the national average. It would be somewhere close to 50% then you know the pain, because it doesn't matter, it does take two to tango, and even though I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody in a divorce situation where they say they're absolutely, utterly blameless, where none of the fault was theirs, but you will feel rejection. There is no closer, deeper relationship than marriage. And if you've been married like 19 or 20 years and got divorced, it's even a greater impact, I think, than the first few years because so much of your life has been committed to one person and there's comparatively little of it left. And I think that people that go through that go through the greatest emotional earthquake, the greatest trauma that you could imagine. I once saw a stress scale that showed that if a person lost a loved one or went through a divorce or lost a job or moved to a different area, they'd kind of arbitrarily taken a certain scale like a 1 to 10 and said that here's the stress under which you have been placed and the likelihood of your having a nervous breakdown. And it was all a kind of a psychological study of these emotional impacts that occur to people and the way they respond if they can't handle it. Let me tell you something. That hurt me so bad when all of that occurred that in the first few days I lost 12 pounds off my fairly sparse frame at that time, was bent over so bad I couldn't even eat, called a doctor, thought I had ulcerated because there were horrible grinding pains in my stomach. I literally thought that I had gotten an ulcer and that my stomach had a hole in it just from the acid that was seeping in there because of what my mind, my brain, was doing to my body. And I hurt so bad for weeks and months, and yes, I suppose for years, but it's all basically drained away and gone now. The hurt is gone long since. But let me tell you something. I didn't hurt one bit more than you did. See, I don't hurt any more than you do, because I'm Garner Ted Armstrong, or I was, a, you know, supposed to be up there near my father in this big hierarchy, or I had access to all the facilities out in Pasadena or flew a jet airplane. It doesn't mean that when I was rejected of my dad that my hurt was a greater hurt than your hurt. We all hurt alike. Your hurt is exactly as big and as painful as my hurt was. We hurt the same way. So don't ever think that 
these Hollywood types have a more glamorous life or a better life or that they have greater love. Or, I mean, a lot of people are sort of mesmerized by the movies. They think that Hollywood types like Elizabeth Taylor with all of her failed marriages is some kind of a sex queen. No, she's a rotten failure. She's a failure. How many, why, why have so many men dumped her? You know, forget it. No, no, we all hurt alike. Our emotions have the same value. It doesn't matter the so-called littlest person in here, the way you evaluate yourself financially, intellectually, or whatever. You hurt the same way I do. Now, Jesus Christ of Nazareth was rejected of men. I want to ask you a question. Did he hurt? Was there ever a time when Jesus Christ hurt? You know, the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. And if you study that very, very fully and completely, you will understand that it had nothing to do with the fact that they were weeping and wailing. It had to do with their lack of comprehension of who and what he was. It had to do with their lack of faith in what he could do. Oh, Lord, said Mary and Martha, if you'd just gotten here a few days earlier, but now it's too late, he's dead. Clang! The huge door that his death had slammed shut and beyond which he could not reach. It was the ultimate final chapter. It's all over. Lazarus is in there. The, the tomb is sealed shut. Oh, Lord, don't go near there. He's going to stink. He's been dead four days now. And he saw the professional weepers and wailers and the people with the vials and hearts making a dirge and all of them throwing dirt in the air and bawling and sobbing. That didn't bother him as much as the women with whom he had traveled, who had kept the duffel that he had traveled many, many years with and had known for years, not only in his ministry, but long prior, some of whom were relatives. And to see them with this total lack of faith, after all the things that he had done, he walked on water. He'd healed a withered hand that just came right on out to a full, healthy hand in front of people's eyes. The four and five thousand tried to triumphantly carry him on their shoulders to Jerusalem when he fed thousands of people from one wicker basket full of a few fish and loaves of bread. They had seen miracle after miracle after miracle and heard about great miracles. But death, he couldn't reach beyond death. And so it said, Jesus wept. Did he fake it? You think he faked it? I don't. I think it came from the innermost part of his being. I think it was utterly involuntary. And I don't think it was the only time. David was known as the kind of a man, even though a king, even though a warrior, the general of his armies, the man who killed 200, not 100, Philistines and took the grisly proof of it back to Saul to win his daughter, David, whom you would not have wanted to meet as an adversary with his flaring red beard and his huge big sword that he'd taken from the dead body of Goliath, cried a fair amount. He would weep before eternal God, and he would repent in tears. Read Psalm 51. And David is mentioned in the lineage of Christ as a type of Jesus Christ and is going to be the king over all of Israel. He was a man of great emotion. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, many, many times, was not in his bed when the disciples woke up. They would wake up and rub the sleep from their eyes and turn over and yawn and look, and there were the empty blankets, and it was probably only 5.30 or 6 o'clock, and he'd been up from 3 or 4. And he'd been up at the top of a mountain praying. Because Jesus Christ, it says, was despised and rejected, and he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now, what is the purpose of all of this hatred directed toward him? You see, the church has generally thought, in all of the years that I've been acquainted with it, and part of it, that his horrible rejection and this great yoke and this burden he talks about, his sacrifice began with the kiss of Judas in the garden that night. 
Judas, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He said. Here they came with their spears and torches, and Peter tried to kill Malcolm and missed and hacked his ear off, and Jesus put it back and healed him and said, Put up your sword into his place. He that taketh up the sword shall die with the sword. And they dragged him on off to Caiaphas' palace and to Gabbatha and back over to Herod, where he came out on the balcony and washed his hands and said, See you to it. This is a righteous man. His blood is not going to be on my hands. And all that night they beat him and spit on him and put a hood over him and whacked him with a shaft of a spear and said, Prophesy, prophet, who was it that hit you that time? And they're snickering and yelling, just having the biggest ball while they're torturing and tormenting this man, the very Son of God. Then they took him out and bared his body and beat him. And yes, he was naked, and yes, they weren't careful where the whip fell. And finally, they put him up on a stake. But remember that he had to carry that stake down the streets of Jerusalem, now called the Via Dolorosa. And as he stumbled under it on one occasion, his cracked and bloody flayed lips, barely able to mouth the words, the women were there weeping, and he came out from under it and looked up at them with the blood all over his body and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. If they do this in the day of the green tree, the good times, what shall they do in the day of the dry? When the armies of Titus surround this city. And so they found another man to bear up under that stake because he couldn't even crawl with it anymore. And that man dragged it on up there. And finally they nailed a huge big spike between his wrists, not his hands. And he Let me give you an example of that that is very outstanding. Luke, the 22nd chapter, verse 21. Let's turn to Luke, and I'll come back perhaps a little later to Isaiah. But Luke, the 22nd chapter... And beginning in verse 21, we break in here, if we had the harmony of the Gospels, it would be far more complete, but this is on the occasion of the Last Supper. And Jesus Christ of Nazareth had told them several days earlier that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed in the hand of sinners, he is going to be killed, and the third day he will be raised again. And on that occasion, almost before those words had gotten out of his mouth, they began to have a strife among them about who was going to be the greatest. But that was several days earlier. Now here we come to the moments after the giving of the bread and the wine. Judas Iscariot, by the way, there's a far more complete rendering of these events in the book of John, where he had said, Behold, the man, the hand of him who betrayeth me is with me at the table. And they said, Lord, who shall it be? And they actually, because he said it out loud, began to argue among themselves about who that would be. And Judas, after he heard a lot of this, said, Well, I suppose it's I. And Jesus said, You've said it. And John was leaning on his shoulder. And John said, Master, who is it? And he said, To him whom I give the sop. And he took this piece of like pita bread and scooped up some of the fragments of roast lamb and juices and handed it to Judas. And Judas saw that, and his eyes glittered with hatred, and he put it down and arose immediately and went out, just as fast as he could get out of there, straight to the priest to tell them where they could find Jesus because he knew he was going to the Mount of Olives. Well, here is Christ. And I want to stop for a moment and make you think about the last time you were in a hospital corridor waiting to hear the outcome of some loved one's operation. Everyone in this room has lost a loved one. There is not a person in this room who has not lost a grandparent or parents or a wife or a husband or children or very close and dear friends, close kin, family members. Many of you in this room have had operations, and many of you have been the loved ones of those who have been injured in an automobile accident or had serious surgery, and you've been waiting out in the waiting room. 
You've had a trauma. Many of you here have been seated in a bench outside a courtroom, knowing that some decision was about to be made, maybe by a female judge that had to do with your entire life's work. Many of you here have faced great climactic traumas, crossroads in your lives, where there's one thing above everything else you needed at that moment. And what was it? It was for the person you loved the most to be right beside you and to reach out and to put an arm around you and squeeze you as hard as they can and to say, I'm with you. I know how this feels. Bear up. Have strength. There's something about having someone we love understand right down to the depths of their being what we're going through and say that to us that drains some of that anxiety and that horror and that evil expectancy, that nervousness, the worry, the not knowing, away from us. They share it with us. Isn't that exactly what you want and what you need at a time like that? When you're undergoing a horrible trauma, you want to be out there by yourself like a little child lost in a forest in a rainstorm in the middle of dark? You want to be out there so lonely there is no other human being to even show you they care? The worst thing you can have happen to you is to be in a trauma where it seems nobody cares. Isn't it? I think it is. And Jesus Christ of Nazareth had just gotten through telling them what he was going to go through and he saw it vividly. He knew every lash to be laid on him. He knew the horrible suffering that was waiting him hours away. And here's what he says. Behold, verse 21, the hand of him that betrays me is with me on the table. And John, as I said, fills in the rest of that conversation. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. How's that for rejection? You turn to someone, you explain to them your trauma, what you're about to experience, the terrible thing, and just gnawing at your guts. And they turn to each other and start arguing about when you're gone, which one gets your car. Think about it. I mean, that's about it, isn't it? These were beloved men. Now, you know, some of the disciples have been gotten to by Judas Iscariot. I think maybe Simon the Canaanite, Bartholomew, some of them. Because, you know, when Jesus wanted to go up to the mount and to see Moses and Elijah as if translucent and glowing with angelic light in the transfiguration as a foretaste of the kingdom of God, he only took James and John and Peter. And they were allowed with him to get that view of what the kingdom of God was going to be like. But the others were not. And as he came down from the mountain, he said, See that you tell no man. The other disciples never even heard about that in any detail at all. Because those three, you see, I understood years ago that there were 12 different egos at work here. Judas was a rotten, as we know, uh, as he was called, son of perdition. Allowed even Satan the devil himself to come inside and take possession of him. The others were good and decent men, but they were human. They were carnal. They had their own egos and their own vanity. And they also had the ability, like a lot of us have the ability, to hurt someone by showing they just didn't care. They didn't understand. How many times in how many ways in our lives as we go along, by some little act, or more often the lack of some little act, the lack of showing something, do we hurt and cut and wound and injure people because of not caring? That must have really hurt Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, what was the next event that hurt him? It shows when they got to the mount. 
that he goes out and he says to them, watch, because he didn't want to be disturbed. That's why he said it. And he went a stone's throw as it were away, and he cast himself down headlong. He didn't just kneel or look up or anything else. He threw himself face to the earth and began praying until the drops of perspiration, as it were, drops of blood were pouring down his forehead. In an agony, it said, he prayed the more earnestly. It only tells us the gist of what he prayed. But all of his words, why, they must have been thousands, because he went there three times and maybe prayed for an hour each time. Each time he came back, the disciples were asleep. And he said, Father, if it be thy will, let's work it out some other way. Maybe there's some different way we can accomplish the same thing. Probably with that brilliant mind, he was thinking of plan B, plan C. There are a lot of ways, because he was human, he was flesh. He didn't want to think about this body, which he loved. I love mine. You love yours. This is what we're at home in. We live in here. This is us. I don't want my cheeks to be flayed away where I go through all of my life disfigured. I don't want to die as the victim of a brutal beating. And notice, neither does anybody else. And neither did Christ. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Three times. And what did he find when he came back? They weren't even able to remain alert and to be watching for interlopers or intruders. They had gone to sleep. They could only think of their own comfort. Christ was rejected from the time he was a boy. He was rejected at 12 and 14 and 17. He was rejected at age 30 when he began his public ministry. He was rejected all through that ministry by his own brothers, by the Jewish leadership, by people that he met, people who allegedly, it says in John 8, believed on him and he was rejected at the last, even by Peter, who stood in the courtyard as Jesus' scalp was being torn from his head and took the name of God in vain and cursed by the name of the deity to say, I don't know him, and rejected Christ. And yet Peter became one of the original twelve apostles. Yes, as I go back here, in Isaiah 53, and I read this, I wonder if it applies to some extent to our experience in the church of God in these latter days. He is despised, verse 3, and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Have we done that? Have we hidden our faces from him? Has the church not understood the lonely sacrifice of Christ? For years prior to my ouster, I believe that I was the sole minister in the Church of God whose preaching almost entirely emphasized Jesus Christ. I wrote the book, The Real Jesus, while I was very much a part of the worldwide church. I began the book, Peter's Story, while I was very much a, char a part, and my entire concept of the book was in my mind and heart, while I was still in that organization. I remember the sermon at Tampa St. Pete on the greatest secret that was ever kept of how Christ died and was so shocked when his father turned away from him and he said, Why hast thou forsaken me? I think now that at this time God is revealing something that is merely a fuller, broader, more beautiful understanding of the sacrifice of Christ, of its total applicability to every fiber of our lives. That has not been understood before. But I also wonder as I look back to what extent Jesus Christ was merely a part of the decoration. He was merely a part of the guilt on the frame. He was merely the salt and pepper at the end of the meal. In Jesus' name, amen. 
but where we heard the government of God and the laws of God and the work of God and the church of God and the rule of God and the kingdom of God and on and on and on. Loyalty, fidelity, get back of me. And our relationship was comfortable. As long as we could be in the cocoon and we could feel he likes me, the man up there in the pulpit. I'm in his good graces. I look good on the computer. If they check, I'm okay. I've, I've paid my tithes. I'm, I'm safe, I think. But I'd better not ask. And then we have this checklist. Danger, you know, yellow and red. Don't ask this. Don't get into that. I, I wonder to what extent, year after year after year, many of us heard sermons and had the experience that would bind us more closely to a human in a lateral physical relationship, and that gave us comfort, and that wiped away our fear. It has been a brand new experience for many people to, as it were, have an out-of-the-body experience, and I say that by analogy, to step out, as it were, and stand there alone before Jesus Christ of Nazareth and have a relationship alone before him with nothing between the two of you. Just Christ up there in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, as Stephen said when he was dying with the rocks hitting him, and you, the way were you born, all your splendid naked glory in the shower. Just you and Jesus Christ of Nazareth, with no one else to mess it up or get between you and him, or having anything to do with your relationship with Jesus Christ, but just you down in there where you live. I think, as I look at this, it says... We hid, as it were, our faces from him. It's almost like an indictment on God's church over the past many decades. And truly, to a large extent, I think all of us have done that. He was despised, and we didn't pay attention to that part. We esteemed him not. Have you been rejected? So was he. Have you been hurt? So was he. Have you been lonely? So was he. Frustrated? So was he. You see, no more will I ever say when someone writes a letter and says, I am lonely or I'm a shut-in, please pray for me. No more will I say to myself, well, that is not a part of the sacrifice of Christ. Because yes, it is. Yes, it is. Every physical frailty, every emotional stress, every pain you feel is a part of of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's say you're in your front yard. It's the autumn as it is now. You've got a rake in your hand and there are thousands of leaves. I want you to think of those leaves as every heartache, every problem, every anxiety. People in here with the political thoughts about different men and women that go back year after year in certain church areas where some people don't like each other and some people don't like certain ministers and certain ministers don't like other ministers and some wives don't like husbands and kids don't like parents. There are all kinds of political problems. Every man, woman, and child I'm looking out here is a very complex, gigantic computer filled with billions of thoughts with a lot of experiences and with all kinds of little nuances of human behavior in their past, including certain concepts about individuals even in this room. Don't you understand that every one of those leaves as a problem, mental, emotional, financial, physical, can be raked up into a big pile and can be set fire to, and the smoke that goes up and just 
becomes a part of the universe, as if wafting it up into the heavens, completely causes those leaves, those problems, to disappear. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, literally washed away by his life sacrifice, your sins. And the word of God says, and they shall never again be mentioned unto you. Maybe there have been some baptized since the feast started. We were having almost daily baptisms up there in at Wagoner. And perhaps there have been. Have there been uh, one or two here? I imagine so. So some of you brand new brethren in Christ have experienced that. I want to tell you, it isn't just something in your notebook. It isn't some rationale. It's not an argument. It's not a, quote, doctrine, end quote. It's not something you just believe. It happened. There was a record. It was besmirched. It looked like something somebody had gotten out of the bottom of the garbage can. It was written all over up there, and there were angels keeping tabs on it. And the instant you repented, that thing was wiped clean and white and sparkling as driven snow. It isn't there anymore. And furthermore, nobody can ever look it up again. Now, human beings, of course, think they forgive, but they retain. They don't ever forget. God not only forgives, he forgets. So that sacrifice obliterates our sins. But yet we've still got a life to live. We've got a daily life to live, and he calls it a straight, difficult, rocky, rutty, hurtful, and painful way. Via dolorosa, the painful route, the painful way of our own human physical lives. On a daily basis, it says, we have a high priest, and we're supposed to be going to him. Let's finish just this part and go to that section. Surely, in verse 4, he has borne our griefs. We haven't looked at that. We haven't depended upon it. We haven't called upon him to just drain away our, our griefs, our suffering, our lonesomeness, our pain, and carried our sorrows. When you have something that afflicts you so badly that you have lost sleep, my wife and I have had that experience quite recently. When you shed buckets of tears, I suppose, if you could collect them all, when you don't want to eat, when you're up at night, you can't sleep at night because of things that are a heavy burden, think of Christ who has carried our sorrows. Don't try to carry it alone. He has borne your grief. Don't try to carry it alone. Give it to him. We don't do that. We try to carry it alone. We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. We're like sheep that have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Eternal has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He is brought like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. And much more, it says, about Christ in that chapter. I'm going to go back to the book of Hebrews right quickly, the fourth chapter. There are many segments of the book of Hebrews that bear on the ministry and the priesthood of Jesus Christ in a daily sense. But in the fourth chapter, it says, beginning in verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, what if the best friend you ever had, with whom you grew up from about grade two or three or four, all the way through high school, had gone into the military and ended up on the NSC staff? What if he had the ear of President George Bush? What if his office was in the White House? And he says to you as he is going there, listen, let's not lose track of each other. Just because I'm over there, let's not be strangers. I'll call you and give you my number and you let me hear from you. Let's stay in touch. And what if you feel so deeply about issues like abortion, criminal justice, pedophilia, 
the incredible revelation about some of the Catholics in California and Arizona where dozens of priests were known to be fondling little boys. When you hear of the some 50,000 youngsters in the United States that disappear every year, many of them victims of satanic cultists, are there issues in this society, drugs and the cartels and drug lords in Colombia trying to bring a government to its knees? and Noriega down in Panama, and so many things that you feel deeply about, but you feel frustrated and helpless because there's nothing you can really do about it except as a spectator watching all of this going on in the world. You have to sigh and cry, as the Word of God says, for the abominations that you see around us. And the phone in the White House, your very best friend, who sees George Bush on a daily, almost a, a daily basis, never rings. Wouldn't that be strange? Wouldn't that be really crazy if you've got that source of power, that inside avenue to the seat of all power? Now, God the Father up there in heaven above, we only know, said Christ, because we can know Christ. Many people will say God is not real to them, and that's true, because they have not studied about him. They have not imbibed and drunk in of the life and the experience of Jesus Christ. My little niece, who died at age 17, hit all the papers in Southern California when she was born to my sister and brother-in-law, Mr. and Mrs. Vern Matson. Her name was Carol Ann. When she was born, all of her vital organs were in a little sack outside her body. A portion of the umbilical cord was housing her stomach and her liver and her intestines. And they didn't want her name to be splashed all over the paper, so they just called it Little Miss X. And it was a phenomenal thing. Operations successfully placed those organs back inside that little girl's body. When I would see them changing her deities as she was a little girl, two, three, four, and earlier, and that little parchment-like skin just heaving with her breathing, it was a miracle to me. It didn't just burst because it looked like the skin of a grape, and you could actually see the entrails there. She grew to be 17 with a tortured, twisted back before she finally succumbed to the many causes of her early death. My dad loved that little girl. She was so thin and always precariously clinging to life, and he called her his little princess, and he would always take gifts to her and, and uh, hold her and love her and so on. Well, when she was only about four or five years of age, I guess. It didn't last for very long. You know the way kids fantasize. They play, they play games, and they live in their own little world. Well, she developed a relationship with her boyfriend to whom she gave the name Peanuts. And she would be sitting there with little cups and saucers and dolls, and she would say, now, Peanuts, you sit there, and I'll pour the tea. And, you know, she's just carrying on a conversation like an older person would at a tea party with Peanuts. And he was a figment of her imagination. You know, Peanuts was more real on a daily basis to my little niece, Carol, than Jesus Christ is to some of us. Because she talked to him all the time. And if we only think of Christ in a sort of a, I don't know, a formal, distant, far off, billions of years, billions of miles, kind of a shadowy person there at the right hand of something or other, and beyond that is something or other that is great and bright and shiny. And uh, yeah, I guess it's up there somewhere, but where is that? And most of the time, though, when somebody hurts us, we just get mad. When someone shuns us, we 
say, I don't, I don't get mad, I just get even. When somebody uh, rejects us, we cry. You know, your mind is the most active, I've found, when someone has really done you dirt. Your mind gets to go on 100 miles an hour figuring about exactly what you're going to say, what you're going to do, who you're going to call. And you'll call three or four people, you'll write a letter, you're maneuvering around, you're going to do something. Boy, I mean, you're going to use words like a giant club. You're going to use words like a sword. If and when you can, you're going to come up with the absolute rapier-tongued lance that is going to let their blood. You're going to say, oh, is that so? You know, I mean, we really, our mind just get going when we are mad, angry, upset, rejected, and hurt. But Jesus Christ of Nazareth is not contacted. The phone doesn't ring. They're just silence up there in heaven. I think if we understand the lonely sacrifice of Jesus Christ and why he went through that, this church is going to grow because it is not a matter of numbers. It isn't a matter of money. It isn't a matter of television stations. God says, not by might nor by strength or power, but by my Spirit, says the Eternal. And if any will come unto me and drink, out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. That means good and righteous works, like a flowing river of clear, crystal blue water. It means power. It means miracles to be performed. It means powerful witness in your own lives, your local area, on television, the printing press, radio, whatever. But there is only one thing impeding us, our own reluctance and perhaps shame. Jesus said, Whosoever is ashamed of me, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of at his coming. And the Apostle Paul said in the second chapter of Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation unto everyone that believeth. This church, the parent church, for years and decades, I say, going before Sadat in Egypt, going before the Chinese, going before people who believe in Shinto and Buddha and Allah, has been ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I do not go before these people as a representative of Allah. Billy Graham doesn't. Billy Graham will go to communist Russia and talk about Christ. What has been the matter with the church of God who bears his name that we cannot talk about Jesus Christ of Nazareth? We think the Protestants, do we think the Charismatics, do we think the Pentecostalists who talk about Jesus all the time have somehow cornered the market? He belongs to them, does he? We don't make mention of him. I asked the people, and I think 90% of them were so embarrassed they could barely croak the words, to say with me audibly, I love Jesus Christ with all my heart and all my mind and all my soul. And I said, say it with me. And two or three did. Please say it. Second time, and then about half did. But even then, there were many the third time who couldn't bring themselves to just openly say it. I'm not going to embarrass you by asking you to do that here publicly. Read this scripture. We have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, not just the infirmities, but the way it feels when you hurt. Christ knows that. Like those leaves that you can burn, give those burdens to him. Give them up and walk away from them and know that they are secure in his arms. 
Give up your hatreds. Give up your animosity. Give up your antagonisms. Give up your politics. Give up the plan to six months or a year from now say just the right thing to put somebody down. You can repent of those bad things, but you can give up your lonesomeness. You can give up your infirmity, your feeling of rejection and of sadness. You who have undergone a divorce, whose hearts have been broken, who have been rejected by a mate with whom you had the closest human physical relationship into which it is possible for mankind to enter. You don't share a marital bed, human hands on naked bodies together as husband and wife, whispering endearments without it being a total giving of the very innermost being to each other. You commit, you give to each other in marriage. So give to Christ in the same way. Unabashed, holding nothing back, give yourself to Him. Give your problems to Him. Give your worries to Him. More importantly, give yourself to Him. Give yourself to Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and let's not ever again fail to recognize his lonely sacrifice. I know that when Jesus Christ of Nazareth says in Luke 14, If any man come not to me, and love not less by comparison his father, his mother, his wife, his children, or his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And I think that I can tell you that to the exact degree that God's church opens up our hearts and minds and gives our lives and very beings into the hands of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we will experience growth, we will experience miracles, we will experience the magical, as it were, uh, facilities that we need for an academy. We will have the help we need in every aspect of God's work exactly to the degree that we open up and give our lives to Jesus Christ of Nazareth and love Him and adore Him and worship Him and are continually reminded to praise Him. The Charismatics say, praise His holy name. But every day in heaven, there is a symbolic ceremony going on. The great sages called 24 elders take their crowns and they cast it down at the feet of him who sits on the throne, and they say, Holy and righteous and honorable and worthy art thou, O Lord God, because you have judged thus. So if the angels worship him, how can we do any less who are to judge angels? Do you love Jesus Christ of Nazareth? I think you're all saying in your hearts, Yes, you are. And I hope that Almighty God has helped me to just broaden and deepen that love and to release some of it out of your hearts and to just draw us closer to Him through this, I think, new revelation of the depth and breadth of Christ's lonely sacrifice.